Oh, wait, I have a question. How do I save it? Oh, yeah. So click on that and then you can either bookmark it or if you're wanting to do it like on your phone or, or your tablet, uh, you'd be able to add it to your home screen uh, like we did with uh, the Learning Zion website. Um, are you wanting to do it on, on a computer or, or a device? It's on my phone. Just through Google, Google Docs, right? Just so I can open up Google Docs. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, Shortcut to the drive. Uh-huh. Yeah. You can do it that way. Uh, once it's in your browser, you could also add it to your home screen if you um, like that method better, whichever way. I guess I have to put it in a new folder. I got it. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yep. All right. So chapter 10 is a fun and interesting chapter. There is a lot that I had not previously known or considered about Isaac's sacrifice here. And um, anyway, just, just an amazing chapter full of insights, full of questions. I have a lot of questions from here for the author when, when we get there. It's gonna be interesting how that, um, that goes next Sunday with um, I have so many questions and I know that he's not going to have time for all of them, but <laughs> we're going to try to narrow it down to the, uh, the best ones, I guess. Um, but yeah, let's, let's start off here, uh, jumping into uh, like the information on, on page 208, uh, kind of where it says that um, Josephus insists that this was not a command, but a request to, for Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. I found that very interesting. I, I've never heard that before. Um, that was a, a new kind of paradigm shift for me. Um, but essentially, God was saying, I request of you, or as Jewish tradition similarly records the Lord as saying, please, which is, is a whole new spin on it. And here yeah. we come from, from the last uh, couple chapters where Abraham... Uh, negotiates with the Lord on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he pours out his heart and soul for them. And then here, he, he just goes with it. And, he, and it's kind of a, a character shock. You're like, well, why wouldn't he plead for his son like he did for Sodom and Gomorrah? But Abraham seems to know that this is, this is a whole different ballgame. This isn't about saving lives. This is about um, doing what the, the Lord wills. And um, anyway, uh, like it says here, I have uh, highlighted toward the end of the page, uh, right before the last paragraph, all he needed to know was what God desired. God's wish was truly Abraham's command, no matter how hard. And, and I just love that, how telling that is for, for Abraham and, and his character. Um, what other things uh, stood out to you from this first part of the story before they actually take the journey up to, to Mount Moriah? Um, any um, it made me remember in the Book of Mormon where it talks about why, so that someone would know how Heavenly Father felt to sacrifice his son. So it says that on, on page 209, at the bottom it says, um, the true order of sacrifice intended to signify the future sacrifice of the beloved son. Mm -hmm. So that really made sense to me when I was reading the Book of Mormon and I learned that about Abraham it, like brought it together I'm like oh yeah I totally get it um I'm glad it was him and not me <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I'm sad it had to be anybody that had to do all that but um I, I don't think I could have done this mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a very difficult challenge and a very difficult trial to to just wrap your head around first of all and let alone complete and, and carry through with them and I kind of I'd always thought that um Isaac was younger like 12 or something, but I don't, it sounds like he was more like an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a, a new paradigm shift as well for me. It's like, oh, and here's an adult, because sometimes kids kind of go along with things and maybe they don't necessarily know what's happening to the full extent, but here we have an adult that willingly goes with it and and, and fully submits to, to the Lord's will as well. So um, I, I love what it says on page... On page 213, um, in, in the words of Ellie Weisel, this is in between footnote 69 and, or in between footnote 70 and 71. And it says, in the words of Ellie Weisel, um, 
the sacrifice was to be their joint offering, and father and son had never been so close as Isaac lay on the altar, silently gazing at his father. I loved that image. And Heavenly Father, too, that was a joint offering. They both knew. Uh huh. Yeah. And that's uh, exactly where uh, my mind went when I read that. I was like, so if Abraham and Isaac represent God the Father and, and Jesus Christ, you know, that was a joint offering, the atonement, both parts, Gethsemane and on the cross. These, these are joint offerings. They're, they're offering different parts in order for the greater whole. And I was like, oh, man, this is a new concept for me. Um, is this ever a thing for us? Is there ever a time when we offer joint offerings and um, much like Abraham and Isaac here? All throughout the book, we've seen Abraham and Sarah uh, making lots of sacrifices and things. But but here, it's a little bit different with, with Abraham and Isaac and a joint offering. I found that a very interesting thing to ponder throughout this week. But yeah, uh, kind of picturing in our, our minds now, uh, a lot of times art does um, a good... Uh, to, to help us visualize the, the context of the stories. But sometimes it actually kind of um, takes a while to correct some things if, if they're a little bit wrong. You know, I've never seen a, a painting of Isaac being older. Uh, it's always as a young lad, uh, many different uh, perspectives there. And so um, kind of retooling my, my mind and, and imagining this scene and having Abraham, you know, he's very old. And then we have Isaac, who's um, in his 20s, 30s here, uh, going up to, to Mount Moriah on this three-day journey. And then we have these other uh, lads that are in tow as well. Uh, anyway, it's just a whole new scene for me that, that I had never considered before. Cameron, I've read in other commentaries, they're just commentaries, so we don't know for sure, but that Isaac was that they felt like Isaac was the same age as Christ was when he was on the cross. Yeah, that 33, it would definitely point to a lot of symbolism here. Mm -hmm. um, so, Cameron, yeah. I don't mean to minimize anybody or their, but they both, I don't know when this, they both, don't you think, um, had seen angels and conversed with Jesus Christ himself. Mm -hmm. So the sacrifice, I mean, they believed implicitly in eternal life. They knew that Isaac would not be lost. I mean, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? So the sacrifice mm -hmm. is not like we'll never see Isaac again. Maybe they thought he would be resurrected immediately or translated. I, I mean, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And that was definitely a part that I wanted to touch on tonight. Yeah. Because like, what was going through their mind? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. Abraham, I mean, he's seen uh, Christ and God the Father many times in uh, these uh, apocalyptic visions, etc. And so, I mean, this, this faith and it's not just faith. I mean, this is actual knowledge that, that God exists and, and he will um, do wonders. I mean, just the fact that Isaac was conceived and is now an adult, this is, this is amazing. And so, um, yeah, what's going through Abraham's mind? And, uh, you know, all he needed to know was what God desired. And so maybe he thought that he would be miraculously saved, like uh, when Abraham was saved in Ur when he was younger. Maybe he thought that um, he'd be resurrected on the spot or at least raised from the dead uh, prior to Christ. Uh, who knows exactly what we've got here, but that, that faithful submission, because it, it would be hard either way. So say in your mind um, that, that you're just planning on, on God bringing him back to life through the power of the priesthood kind of a thing. It's still going to be like a, a crazy scene having to actually take the life of your son in order to, to prove this like that, that, yeah, there's many different facets to, to the thinking here. And 
reflects, especially it reflected on that he, it was his seed that would, you know, be plentiful. <laughs> and, yeah, this was the actual covenant son that the seed was going to come through kind of thing. Well, and he had seen visions. Abraham had seen visions of the house of Israel. He knew mm -hmm. that his posterity was going to be as the stars in the heaven and as the sands of the sea. Another interesting thing was it was promised that the latter day prophet Joseph Smith would come through his seed. I thought that was so interesting. So he knew that the promise would be fulfilled whether Isaac was sacrificed or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He so God's I, think, true. I think that, and we've heard this, you know, growing up in the church that it wasn't God that was being tested. It was Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. He mm -hmm. needed to know that his love for God was truly greater than this great, great love he had for this beloved son, Isaac. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I love that. Um, so on uh, the bottom of 208, page 208 here, um, it, you know, it, it very much is Abraham being the focus here, but what about Sarah? Um, did he explain any of this? It kind of points from, from the story here that at least Isaac didn't know if his mother knew. He assumed that, that she didn't and, and she was not going to be able to take the news well uh, once the sacrifice happened. Um, it, it's an interesting parallel here. Uh, why wouldn't Sarah be involved in, in this uh, trial, in this um, test uh, uh, of things? I found that a, a, another interesting point to ponder because Abraham and Sarah have very much been uh, co-equals in revelation, in prophetic powers, etc. And and here there's there's a little bit of a division where uh, it's not Abraham and Sarah, but it, it shifts to Abraham and Isaac. Um, it seems that that Sarah does have other tests and trials. We know with like Abimelech, the king of Gerar, or or the king of Egypt. Uh, that, that she has um, equal and opposite trials in, in loyalty, et cetera, that are, are testing and challenging um, at, at different times. But yeah, to answer uh, uh, the question of where is she at in this story, that's uh, kind of an interesting one. I, I would love to, to talk with the, the author about that as well. Well, women are generally a little more tenderhearted. <laughs> I mean, it, just the thought of doing that just tears you up, you know, I, it might be for that reason. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting to note, like in the actual temple sacrifices and in, in the Levitical law that, you know, it was the men, the, the representatives of the household that would actually go in and, and sacrifice the animals uh, with the priests, etc. cetera. Um, that it wasn't the a whole family affair. It was, it was just, the, the presiding priesthood uh, authority in the home and the, um, the actual sacrificial animal kind of thing. So when did, I, when did Isaac realize that he was going to be the sacrifice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, what page is that on here? Well, what, before they head up the mount, uh, doesn't Isaac say, um, where's the lamb? Ask where the lamb is. Yeah, so on page 211 and 212, it kind of discusses that here. Um, so when, uh, well, let's talk really quick about the bottom of 208 because it leads right into this. So on, on the bottom of 208, uh, footnote 22-ish, uh, it says that uh, Abraham did not disclose what he had been asked to do. He simply, as Genesis tells, rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he did it himself, although he had many servants, and took his two lads with him, 
and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the offering, rose and went to the place that God had said to him. So how many people are, are going up to, to Mount Moriah here? Uh, it kind of gets uh, kind of muddled throughout the different translations, etc. But we have Abraham, Isaac, and two lads. So we have four, uh, four males uh, going up for this sacrifice. But yet uh, two of the lads uh, here on page 211 um, are, are getting left uh, just outside of, of ascending to, to Mount Moriah here. Um, where does it say that they'll come back? Oh, it's on the bottom of 210. So um, Abraham said to his lads, you stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and then we will come back to you. And so um, throughout uh, this next part of the journey, when it's just Abraham and Isaac, then Isaac um, starts asking and um, you know, I, I think comes to the realization at that point, but I, I could be wrong as well, that um, Isaac then realizes and has to, to walk those steps knowing that he is the sacrifice and that um, being kind of put to that test. But I have to wonder if he was prepared by uh, some means prior to this whole event by angels, by uh, ministering angels, etc., in order to, to so willingly submit to, uh, to this. Because a lot of times when, when revelation comes or when um, uh, something hard is coming our way, our immediate natural man reaction is to just kind of uh, like kind of kick against the bricks on it kind of a thing. But yet he doesn't do any of that. And so there, it shows a lot about Isaac's character and Abraham as a parent teaching Isaac those kind of principles of fear not and, and to go along with um, these things uh, just like Abraham had to learn all of that. Um, let's see. Cameron, it, it seems like Abraham knew that this was a similitude of um, with the, the Savior being uh, crucified because he had uh, Isaac pack the wood, which re represent because that's what Christ had to do is pack his uh, cross uh, the thing. So him having done that, it seems like he he knew that this was a sim similitude mm -hmm. in my mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, we've talked many times about Abraham's visions. You know, he he was able to see Christ's mission, his atoning sacrifice, et cetera, and how it played into the whole grand scheme of things. And so being able to, uh, being commanded to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, you know, he, he definitely would have seen that similitude there. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's, there's so much here. Um, yeah, can do that. So like on page uh, 212, let's talk about this Akeda. Uh, I've heard this word before, but I never knew what it uh, referred to or anything. Um, but on kind of toward the bottom of 212, uh, uh, footnote 61, it talks about that um, Judaism still uses this word to refer to this event, the Akeda or the binding of Isaac. Um, Many times you'll you'll see Akeda throughout uh, different um, targums or or messianic texts, um, but I never knew what it was until I read this book. Of, oh, Akeda is is the binding of Isaac. Anytime you're talking about that that thing, it's all wrapped up in that that one word. Um, and here where Isaac uh, says, "Bind me well that I may not struggle at the anguish of my soul," and that a blemish may not be found in your offering. I think that that's interesting to note as well, that Isaac knew about the requirement of uh, a non-blemished lamb prior to his posterity ever receiving the Levitical law of the, 
you know, the, the, the Paschal lamb and, and not having blemish here. Uh, I find that interesting phrasing on Isaac's part. Um, and then according to, to Al-Tabari, Isaac implored his father, fasten my bands so that I do not move about and tie back your garments so that none of my blood splashes on them, lest Sarah see it and be saddened. So even, <laughs> even in all of this drama here that ensues, what is Isaac's chief concern? That, that he won't botch this sacrifice and that his mother's heart won't break over this. Like, what an amazing man right there. Like, I, you know, I, I don't think a 12 or 13 year old could, could even uh, have that kind of um, compassion and, and knowledge here. Like, it, it just kind of points to, to the fact that he was a little bit older and, um, and so mature in his spiritual development that he had that same said that compassion, that loving kindness even in the midst of a test or a trial, um, there was no um, hesitation, no fear, no um, self-serving thoughts. It, it was all directed outward to those around him. I, I found that because we just don't hear much about Isaac um, throughout the scriptures and, and things, you know, when we finally uh, get all of scripture restored and everything, we'll, we'll have Isaac's text. But, I, you know, there, there's just kind of a big disconnect between us and, and Isaac. We know Abraham and we know Jacob pretty well, but, but Isaac, we just kind of have like a couple little stories here and there. And so I found this so telling to his character, uh, things that I had never known or, or considered before. Well, it also says that Abraham heard the commandment or the request from God, but Isaac had not, he, but he, yet he knew that his father was following a command from God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting to point out because like, you know, it, it's one thing to hear the voice of God and, and actually follow through with a commandment, but to hear it kind of secondhand sometimes is a little hard. It's a it's more difficult to, to, to follow those promptings sometimes. I, I'm not, you know, trying to make a blanket statement there, but yeah, that, that would have been an additional challenge there. But yet it was this, this kind of a joint offering, both Abraham and Isaac here. Um, well, and can I just read this from page 211? Yeah. Together they reached the top of the mountain Together they erected the altar and together they prepared the wood and the fire. So it was like we have said, a joint sacrifice. And I think Isaac understood that he would be sacrificed, but they did it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I just love that. <clears throat> um. Cameron also there, it was interesting, uh, Elder Melvin J. Ballard. Mm -hmm. um, isn't he President Ballard's dad? Or is it a, just a relative? I believe so, but I could be wrong. Uh, I, I, I might be wrong. I can't remember for sure. But anyway, um, he added that Abraham must have given his son, his farewell kiss, his blessing, and his love. That the blessing, you know, how like patriarchs give their kids their blessings, you know, and stuff. I mean, how tender a moment. I, I can't even imagine how that all played out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Melvin Ballard is uh, M. Russell Ballard's grandfather. Grandfather? Oh, okay. But yeah, and then um, on page 213, um, I, I love this prayer that Abraham offers as he is sacrificing Isaac. 
I, I've never known that we knew even a part of the text before. Um, but it's in the Islamic text from the early 1600s that purports to provide the contents of that unique prayer, beginning with a striking allusion to a prior experience of Abraham, quote, most high and omnipotent sovereign, may all the celestial potentates of thy blessed seraphic choirs give praises to thy holy name with their melodious and echoing hymns forever and ever. Later in that prayer, Abraham gratefully acknowledges the Lord's goodness and implores his grace. Quote, we have hourly tokens of thy great and boundless love towards us. I am now, Lord, upon the point of accomplishing what thou hast commanded me to perform. Grant, therefore, I beseech thee that I may be illuminated with thy grace so that I may be able perfectly to complete what I have taken in hand to thy honor and glory. I just... I, the first time I read that, I was just kind of in tears almost, like hearing Abraham's words in that specific moment uh, really just connected me with Abraham on a level that I hadn't before. Um, just as it, it says right in between that quote that I, I quoted there. It's a Did you say Seraphaf? Did you say that seraph Seraphaf? Uh, seraphic choirs is how i pronounced it but i could be wrong I'm so not... is that is that part of um isaiah's ladder uh-huh yeah yeah um so, so the, the when you're up that high when we're talking about in, in isaiah when you're up that high you have to come down again and that was his down mm -hmm. yeah and and we will get into some of that here at, at the end too about uh, isaiah's ladder and the different levels of it in throughout the story but yeah, uh, we have these these uh, seraphic choirs, that seraphim category uh, mm -hmm. that are coming down here. And it's very interesting because, you know, we, we talk about Abraham and Isaac being there alone, obviously, but throughout this chapter, we find many more people that, that are attending this than we ever thought to realize, much like Christ's atonement. Uh, many, many people were, were there. Um, angels and, and seraphim and, and gods, etc. Um, but isn't it interesting what these different accounts uh, talk about and bring up here? So like on page 215, underneath uh, that first kind of quote there, it says that rabbinic texts tell of the angels weeping and pleading with God to stop the sacrifice. Um, then we have Oh, there's quite a few other ones, but my pages are, are so marked up, I'm having a hard time finding them. But anyway, there's there's multiple um, little parts here in the story where where angels or prior generations and future generations are coming to, to plead for and on behalf of Isaac here. I find that a very interesting um, point that um, that happens again with, with Christ, um, that angels are coming to minister to him at that point. Uh, we see that Isaac here is receiving a vision while on the altar, and after the the sacrifice is uh, abated, that Abraham then sees a grand vision. I mean, this is much more than just two men going up on a mountain, um, getting an angel coming, striking the, the knife out of his hand, and, and going home. I mean, we just kind of get the, the very, very basic story without all of the tidbits, usually in our Sunday school class, et cetera. But, but it, this is a grand event. There's many actors on the stage. We have uh, many things playing out, many visions, and it's a big revelatory process here on Mount Moriah. It's just so rich in, in if, you, if you practice visualization and meditation at all, that this is such an extensive experience in, in visualizing what's happening here. And Cameron, maybe here is something that a lot of members of the church haven't thought about. And this is my own opinion. But when Christ was performing the atonement, it says that there was an angel that came to strengthen him. And Bruce R. McConkie teaches us that that angel was Adam. But in the temple, we learn that we're supposed to put ourselves in the place of Adam. Mm -hmm. So when Christ was atoning 
for our sins. Where do you think we were in the universe? Mm -hmm. This is my opinion. I think we were there. And I think we said, Jesus, if you do this for me, I will take advantage of your sacrifice. And I think that our love for him and our faith in him strengthened him. Yeah, I, I concur wholeheartedly. I think that we all would have been there. Like, what better way could we strengthen and buoy him up through that whole sacrifice? Like, as he is saying to his father, our father, you know, if it be possible, remove this cup. Nevertheless, I'll, I'll drink it up, etc. And And we're, if we could all kind of come and, and show like, hey, I'm going to sin a lot. And, and your sacrifice is not in vain. Like our love for you is going to, to reciprocate when we're finally able to come to earth kind of a thing. Like that's such a poignant image to, to think that we were there. We were actual witnesses of that event. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that a lot. Um, and and when the veil is taken from us, we'll remember that. And won't it just mean even more than it does now? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, when we do get uh, the grand vision, like these prophets and um, some apostles that, that have uh, spoke about their uh, their panoramic vision, the, the, when they are able to, to see the end from the beginning, etc. What is that panoramic vision, if not sort of a kind of a deja vu experience where, like, you've seen it before, now you're just going and seeing it again, you're taken to a, a loftier uh, height, so that you can remember and um, remember what you've seen prior. Uh, you, you've seen the whole thing before, you've seen your life, etc. And now, you're, you're getting another glimpse at that prior vision there. Maybe, I don't know. That's another thing, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so on, on page 214 here, uh, Jewish tradition similarly reports that Abraham expected to live a few days only after completing the sacrifice, which is a, a total interesting tidbit that I've never considered before. Like, you know, as Abraham is, is commanded to do this and, and take up his son Isaac and stuff, and then he himself is like, this is going to drain me so much. I, I only expect to live uh, a few days after this. Like, my heart is literally going to break uh, from, from the sacrifice or whatever. Um, but then it says, and reports that the agony he underwent caused his hair to turn white on this occasion. And I found that so intriguing. Um, what What is the, the symbolism behind white hair and why does Abraham turn I mean he's old now I mean what are we in the hundreds right at this point like his hair should already be white why why is it turning white at this instance is there um, anything that indicates on our level of Isaiah's ladder etc that would indicate translation for a moment maybe I don't know (laughs) yeah exactly like there's there's something to the white hair and I haven't totally figured it out yet. I think that there's, there's something important to that symbolism, uh, whether through the prophets or, or whether through our own lives as well. Um, but well, yeah. Jehovah and Elohim are always portrayed with having white hair. I mean, I don't know what it means, but something holy. <laughs> Stature there. Um, Let's see. All right. So we've got a few minutes. Okay. So diving in to the donkey, the ram, and the lamb. We have lots of animals coming into play here. And what does it mean? I'd just like to, to kind of throw out your thoughts on, on the symbolism of all three of those animals. Why, why does the Lord bring in such specific imagery with these animals in this story? What does a donkey represent? What does a, a ram represent? What does a lamb represent, etc.? Just whatever. There's no wrong answers. I, I'd love to just kind of hear your, your thoughts and everything on this. So was it the donkey who carried um, the Savior into Jerusalem on Good Friday? Yeah. 
exactly. Was it Good Friday before before the Passover? What day was that? Thursday. Um, I forget like which day of the week, but yeah, it's it's at the very beginning, uh, triumphal entry, and then the week begins with with everything. Um, and that was prophesied the Sunday. Remember, what was, was it Sunday? The Sunday before? It's Palm Sunday. Palm oh, Sunday. Palm That's Sunday. right. Yeah. The Sunday before, but and that was prophesied too that that would be right that he would come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, riding on that donkey. When when other um, I sorry. When else or what other places are there that include donkeys throughout the scriptures, uh, as specifically Old Testament? Well, Mary was carried on a donkey to Bethlehem to deliver the Christ child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that in a lot of our our films and, and things. Um, there there actually isn't scriptures that that back that up, but uh, that's the way we always portray it for sure. Um, and, and then with Christ and, and his uh, triumphal entry, um, we see, um, what is it, Balaam and, and his donkey, uh, the donkey that talks. <laughs> um, what are some, some other ones? Anyway, what, what is the donkey that represent? As King David and mm, yeah. King Solomon both rode... Um, Colts and and Jesus was uh, was on a a colt. It had to be one that hadn't been ridden before. And um, they they both of those kings rode on um, a colt uh, donkey as they were going to be anointed king. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, let's see. And Jesus, actually, when he was making his triumphal entry, he's signifying, I am the king, I am Mess the Messiah. That's what that whole entry was about. Mm -hmm. But um, with his first time, uh, he's coming in peace, and the donkey kind of represents peace and humility. But the next time he's he'll be on the horse, which is more warlike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When he, when he comes in to save the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a, a lot of kingly representation here, peace, uh, etc. And then um, uh, in Alonso Gaskell's book, the the Lost Language of Symbolism, he always talks that the donkey. It always represents non-covenantal people or people who have yet to make a covenant. Um, and so I found that very interesting as it plays into these other animals. But um, anyway, I think that there's a lot of symbolism here. And so what is the importance of the ram as we find here on page 216? I found this a whole different insight that I've never considered before. Um, let's see, where are we at on the page? It's yeah. So kind of like midway down the page, that second I thought, the, I thought, I loved the symbolism that they pointed out that the ram was entangled in the bush and that Israel would be entangled in sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. I've never once thought of the ram in the thicket as pointing to the latter days. I had never made that connection, that leap there. Um, uh, through time. I, I always thought it was just kind of in this story and that's kind of where it should stay. But but yet here, yeah. Um, uh, God now explained to Abraham that his descendants would likewise be trapped through their sins and entangled by foreign powers. I found that interesting. As you know, we've been studying the, the words of Daniel, the words of Ezra, his prophecy, etc. That this ram is literally God's chosen people trapped through their sins and entangled by foreign powers in the last days. It was like, oh, so we have Daniel's beast, we have Ezra's eagle, and then here we have Abraham's ram that also I, represents this uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the temple in that phrase you just said too. There's a symbol in the temple. 
I can't even remember what I just said. <laughs> now, as soon as you say that, my mind just goes blank. <laughs> so what, um, what Janet was saying, uh -huh. um, looking around, Abraham saw that he had not been seen before. A ram caught by its horns in the thicket, a sign. God now explained to Abraham that his descendants would likewise be trapped through their sins and entangled by foreign powers. But um, in the end, would be redeemed when God would blow the horn, a ram's horn, according to Israel's prophets, and, and gather them home. Interesting. Yeah, so um, in the, in the initiatory. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm making a note to study that more. And it is a ram's horn. Can I say this, Laura? I know. <laughs> yeah, you're good. It is, that part's fine. It is, it is a ram's horn in the temple that the oil that we anoint with is stored in a ram's horn. So there is mm -hmm. some significance to a ram's horn. Yeah, mm -hmm. I always wonder what that was. That's interesting. And it, I think it says right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the end. Comes. Mm -hmm. very interesting I, I remember the the first time I went through initiatories how many times before I actually turned around and and, and seen that horn there once and I was like what the heck I, how many times have I been in this court like what else in the temple am I missing like then my eyes were like open and I'm like keeping an eye out for any possible other symbolisms and stuff that I missed but yeah uh, interesting that, that that consecrated oil comes in in a special container uh, of important significance and symbolism. Um, yes, so a little bit- That's the purpose of the temple is the gathering. Mm -hmm. Here, gather them home. Yeah, the gathering and it is. Oh, two? Was, what is that footnote? Mm -hmm. 102. Uh, there. Yeah, that horn, uh, the blowing of the, the shofar, the, that it's very interesting how that plays out in, in the last days and um, these um, being trapped in our sins and, and entangled by foreign powers, etc. Uh, I think that that's definitely playing out and, and going to play out even much more uh, as we progress towards the second coming. Yeah, so on, on page 216 toward um, the, the bottom here, um, it says that the Abraham receives a vision after this. And it starts off the paragraph, what vision? According to the Midrash Ravah, as Abraham offered up the ram, the Holy One showed Abraham the temple built, destroyed and rebuilt, and yet again rebuilt, firmly established in the Messianic era, as in the verse from Psalms, when the Lord hath built up Zion, when he hath seen in his glory. Thereby Abraham saw the significance of the place where he was standing. It was Mount Zion, says Jubilees. I find that very interesting that, um, you know, obviously Abraham's a, a prophet and um, through this test and trial, he, he learns things about himself. He learns that he is proven faithful uh, like we talked about, this wasn't a test for God. This was a test for Abraham so that Abraham could learn something about himself uh, here. And through that experience, all tests and trials have blessings attached as we faithfully um, go through them. And, and here's one of the, the great blessings that comes from this, this, this miraculous vision of a future temple. Remember back in, uh, in the previous chapter, what are we in? So chapter nine uh, is the great temple building chapter, right? Uh, where Abraham goes and, and builds temples for, for Ishmael, for, for uh, at Beersheba, etc. And, and here, the Lord is granting him a vision of all of the temples that are going to be on this exact mount, uh, Mount Moriah, in, in the future. Like, what a great and important vision that is for him as he's establishing this covenant and, and living faithful for his posterity <laughs> to, to, to witness. And then he dedicated that spot for the future temple. So, mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. 
we find that throughout much of our our history, especially in in the scriptures, that many of our current temple sites were dedicated previously by past prophets. Um, and and here we see way before the the temple is actually built here, Abraham's dedicating that specific spot for it. Um, we have many records throughout the Americas and Nephites, etc., that that are dedicating certain spots for temples. Um, what an important, or important, um, what a, a fun thing to be a part of um, back in, in these times uh, to dedicate future temple spots. I, I think that that would be an awesome responsibility, a calling uh, assignment uh, to fulfill. Um, and then Abraham goes on to see our future tribulations the terrible trials that, that would come upon us in the last days. And then what does he do? Again, he prays. He opens up his heart and petitions the Lord for us in these last days. Many of our Latter-day blessings come from these early patriarchs, from Enoch, from Adam, from Noah, from Abraham. These patriarchs petition the Lord on our behalf, and we have um, these miraculous blessings because of them, because the Lord, in his mercy, in his chesed, that tender loving kindness, um, covenants with our patriarchs on our behalf. And um, anyway, I, I just find that, that that's such a pattern in the church. We never are self-serving. We don't serve ourselves the sacrament. We don't, um, when we bless the sick, I mean, like, we're sick, we don't bless ourselves. We always have to go outside of ourselves. It's a very reciprocal kind of a thing. As we were uh, kind of doing reenactments of a Passover, kind of uh, like a Seder dinner kind of thing, this is when it was kind of first brought to, to light in my mind that you never serve yourself. You don't serve your own drink. You don't serve your own food. You don't pull it off the plate. You always have to be served from somebody else. You're never allowed to, to serve yourself. And I think that's such a huge principle in the grand scheme of God's plan. Um, we're, we're never self-serving. And those that are, aren't ascending on this ladder towards heaven. Um, we're always uh, serving uh, down the ladder and, and those above are serving us from, from above, from a loftier state. Um, and, and that's why we have missionary work. That's why we have temple and family history work. That's why we have ministering and the perfecting of the saints. It's always about extending outside of ourselves and serving others. And in turn, they serve us or other people serve us, etc. But it's always a reciprocal continuation cycle. So for our latter days, those early patriarchs served us from way back then in the only way that they could at, at that time. Like, you know, they're, they know that they're going to go the way of all the earth, etc., and and pass away, or you know, possibly be translated it, as some say. But um, they petition the Lord. They pray that they do everything that they can possibly do at the time on our behalf. And because of those uh, prayers and pleadings, God makes covenants and blesses our future posterity. I find that so in uh, interesting um, how we are served um, in this multi generational. Um, way and how we see that through the, the pattern of Abraham here. We see that with the sacrament as well, that principle that we are served when um, even the those that are passing and stuff, they wait to be served, not yeah. just, you know, take it. Anyway, that principle is, is there with the sacrament. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, Cameron, um, yeah, this sure. might be this might be a really dumb question, but can we cast out evil spirits from ourselves? Can we say? Yes, that's a great question. Yes. Well, can so we? Oh, <laughs> uh, an interesting one. Um, I. <laughs> You know, this is my own opinion, and <laughs> this is on a recorded thing. I have to be careful what I say. But um, I think that there's different levels of evil, unclean, etc. That um, for the most part, I think that we can uh, cast out from ourselves. 
but I think that there are um, certain levels of uh, of evil spirits or unclean spirits, etc., that we do need to go to uh, someone who holds the priesthood in order to do that. Otherwise, why would um, the Lord uh, anoint those apostles and, and grant them that specific power in order to do that? Um, I, I think it is available to, to all the faithful members of the church uh, to certain degrees, but at the same time, I think that there are levels that we as mortals just can't seem to to do on our own and, and certain priesthood authority is required for that. That's my opinion. Don't take that as gospel. But uh, up until this Cameron, point, yeah. everything you say we take as gospel. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty. <laughs> but yes, up until this point, I have been able to cast out anything for myself so far. So I have no experience with, with higher level things. I could be just spewing misinformation. Who knows? But um, but yeah, I that that question was was pointed to me as well this last week is can are we able to cast out from people if they don't ask for it yet or whatever kind of thing? Like if you're um talking with uh with a person who's obviously afflicted by by an evil spirit or whatever. Uh, can you just cast it out for them without them requesting that that specific blessing? That's a, that threw me for a conundrum that I, I didn't know quite how to answer, but uh, that's something to ponder as well. <laughs> uh, I I took a mental trip for a second. Did you talk about um, you can cast out spirits and it's taught in the temple? Did you talk about that? Uh, we haven't talked about that, no. But, um, but that I, is taught in the temple. Mm -hmm, yeah, and that's for all faithful members of the church to... Um, to cast out in that way specifically yes not just people that have been through the temple though right i think well i, I think that the people that have been to the temple have a greater power and uh right to do that uh, i mean it's i think you can teach that to others but you have to be careful with who you teach it to i mean it's not just like um you know you just go out and, and start telling people how to perform exorcisms kind of a thing, you know, because they, they just don't understand that quite. But I think that that's something that, you know, you teach to your children, et cetera, and uh, things. But those that have been endowed with power, it actually gives you uh, greater power in order to, to cast out in, in that way. Does that make sense? I, I don't know. I've shared it before, but not with any, any, um, anything else. Just the words is all I've shared before. Uh -huh. Yeah. Not with any yeah. other not with any of the other instructions that we receive in the temple. Yeah, mm -mm. but just, just the words, like, you know, casting out and, and how you do that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I use that on my mission a lot, you know, with uh, casting out, telling people that it is through Christ that we can cast out. There's a pattern in the New Testament, you know, like through Christ's name, a, a lot of times all it takes is just the mention of Christ's name in order to bring light back into your life and get that flowing again. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm right there with you on that. Um, let's see. I'm just kind of creating a, a quick little note here on something else that came to mind as we were discussing it. All right, so kind of finish. Yeah. So what I really like to um, learn about Abraham so far is that we have a lot of ties with other religions, with the Muslims and with Abraham, and it just really brings it together. And mm -hmm. I think it's really neat. Yeah, for sure. I I love learning about other religions and and their their love for Abraham. Um, it just <laughs> that we have things in common more than we have apart. Exactly. That that love and charity. And and the word apart, we have we all have a part. We all have a part to play, and I think if we remember that, it makes um, everything easier. Everyone has a part, even if we don't agree what their part is, they still have a part. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. So, who are those two lads that stayed at the bottom of the mountain? That's a great question. I don't think we know, <laughs> but it does make me wonder. Mm -hmm. I've never heard again. I missed what you said. She's mom. She asked you to repeat. 
she didn't hear what you said. Oh, um, it said that there was a party of four that went and they had the two lads stay at the bottom of the mound. I'm just wondering who those two lads were that he took with them. They were Abraham's counselors. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this makes you wonder. Um, and then on page 220, I liked at the very top here where it talks about, so where was the lamb? Because when Abraham was promising Isaac um, that, that God would provide, he said that he would provide a lamb, not a ram. But there was the ram in the thicket, etc. And here it says that um, the answer comes only later, as recorded in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and announces, Behold, the Lamb of God. This was the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy uttered in the only conversation that Genesis records between Abraham and his posterity. I find that very interesting to, to point out here that um, the, the ram and the lamb difference. Um, uh, it's, it's almost kind of a first shall be last and the last shall be first here. Um, but, but Christ is the, the lamb that, that is provided for us. Um, and then, you know, just kind of as we're finishing up, we always <laughs> go over time here, sorry. But um, again, who is the angel that, that comes and saves Isaac um, in this, this sacrifice here? None other than, than Enoch, this, this grand Metatron that, that comes and uh, fulfills the, the same kind of blessings that he did for Abraham. I find that so touching that, that Enoch is so involved in their lives and uh, keeps reappearing to, to bless them and, and bear them up. I love that. Yeah, Jenna, did you have a hand? No, I was just going to say Enoch. Oh, sorry. I took it away from you. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. <laughs> yep. But yeah, Enoch is, is such a key, pivotal character in the Abraham story. And that's one of the most grateful things that I am for this book is to, to open my eyes to Enoch and, and his mission in Abraham's life and likewise our lives. And in the last days, how... Enoch and Abraham will play a, a pivotal role in uh, the restoration of all things and, and ushering in the second coming. So Cameron, was um, Abraham then translated to Enoch City or Melchizedek City? City? Did Abraham die or was he translated? Uh, the record has it that he did die. And um, this is an interesting point that I don't know. I, I haven't fully got my head wrapped around all of the intricacies yet, but I think that there are more ways to translate than one. I, I don't think that as we're studying out the different people that have been translated, etc., some of them go to Enoch City or, or Melchizedek City, etc. Some of them go quickly into God's presence. Some of them are, are confined to the earth, not confined. That's a wrong word. Um, some of them have the opportunity to stay on the earth. And those ones, we actually have a title for those. And those are beloved or friends of God or more beloved, more blessed. And then some of them actually die as martyrs. Um, and they actually have a death. They choose to lay down their life when they die, etc. But it's always for the, the work of God. To, to roll forth and that they seal their testimonies with their blood. But I believe that some of those are, are translated beings. Now, again, don't take it for gospel. I have no idea, but that's where my studies are taking me at this point, that there's at least four categories of, of translated beings, and they all have different, wildly different missions to perform. Abraham, I do believe was translated, but I have no, uh, nothing to, to really solidify that in stone, but I believe that he was translated, uh, yet we don't know the full extent of, of his future mission as of yet, at least in my studies. I, I don't have a, a perfect knowledge of that. Uh, I, it's what I'm studying right now. I'll get back to you on it. <laughs> it seemed like he was translated, um, him and Sarah both, at the time their bodies were renewed and she was able to conceive. I think that, that that's when they were translated. 
there's many commonalities within the different levels of translation or not levels, but the different types of translation. There's always a renewing of the bodies. There's always an apocalyptic vision where they're taken up to heaven. Uh, that, anyway, there's things that, that all point to the fact that Abraham and Sarah were translated, but you know, my opinion on that. Well, it says in the Doctrine and Covenants that Abraham is a god now. Mm -hmm. So whether or not he was translated at this point, we know he is a god equal with God. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if you've ever read the Triumph of Zion, that there's many, many of those early pioneers in their patriarchal blessings, it gave them power to translate uh, upon their faithfulness. And we know that most of them did die and, and were buried kind of a thing. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's different ways that we just aren't privy to it at this point um, uh, about how all of that works. Um, anyway, I, I don't know. <laughs> My opinion, lots of different wild tangents there. <laughs> but um, so let's let's talk about the homework and then we'll come back for kind of final thoughts. So um, I bet you can all tell what the homework's going to be. But um, for this week, I would invite everyone to take a three-day journey of, of serious prayer and um, ask the Lord what he would like you to sacrifice and um, receive revelation, receive your own personal revelation on uh, this specific thing. As we, we see uh, um, throughout this whole chapter, but um, especially on, on page 218, um, it, it's a sacrifice of all things. Um, let's see, the, the quote here uh, shows that if a man would attain to the keys of the kingdom of an endless life, he must sacrifice all things. Um, there's a, a few different phrases throughout this chapter that, that talk about this. And so take a, a, the same kind of a three-day journey to Mount Moriah and, and ask the Lord what he would like you to sacrifice. And then wholeheartedly sacrifice that thing whatever it is um it, it may be small it may seem insignificant it may seem huge and, and, and daunting as um sacrificing isaac on, on an altar kind of a thing but but take that journey uh, seek sacrifice seek to to fulfill that law and uh, as we have come into covenanted to in the temple i, I think that it will uh, yield many great blessings for for you and your families as you do so. Uh, I invite and um, invite you to take that challenge. Um, so yeah, any final thoughts as we we wrap up this this amazing chapter? It it kind of seems uh, crazy. You would think that uh, the the great Isaac chapter would would be toward the beginning or whatever, but you know this is this is kind of after a lot of different other stories and things. This is in chapter ten. It's kind of toward the end of um, this storyline here that we have with Abraham, but, but what a great chapter. So many insightful things to, to learn and grow from and, and apply in our lives and in our studies of the covenantal blessings, letting God prevail in our lives. Uh, I love it. Any, any final thoughts you'd like to share? I just thought it was so amazing that the blessings are equal to the sacrifice that really the Lord wanted to bless Abraham, but in order for him to do that, Abraham had to make this sacrifice. And it was the ultimate sacrifice for Abraham. And the Lord blessed him accordingly. I had never thought of that before. And thank you so much for all your insights, Cameron. This was a great discussion. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go back through it and see if I need to edit anything out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't do that, by the way. <laughs> if I say it, I, I mean it, even though I might trip over my words. <laughs> but yeah, if there's nothing else, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and disband with that for the night. Thank you all so much for your your input and insights into things that I, I just love studying with y'all. It's so fun. Um, but yeah, we'll catch you next week and 
and then remember get that next week's when that we get to talk with the author he'll be here yep and and that'll be at 7 p.m mountain standard time um and, and i Is will that next week that. yeah okay. next week the author's coming on um all of the classes are going to be canceled next week and we're all going to be jumping on with the author on this same zoom link at 7 p.m mountain standard time Yep, so we won't have the, the six o'clock class next week. Are you so, giving your questions ahead of time? Sorry, what was that? Are you giving him the questions ahead of time? Um, yes, I, I still have yet to do that. I, I'm going to be submitting those this week. So yes, if you have any final questions that you would like to, to pre-submit to him, uh, send those over to me and then I will uh, forward those on to, to the author. Awesome. But yeah, I will send out a remind text in plenty of time next week to, to remind everyone of uh, that session that, that changes to, to 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And all of the groups will be on there together. So it'll be kind of an interesting experience having everyone in, in one place. How many people will that be then? Um, that's a good question. So we have like, um, I would say we'll probably have around 40 to 50-ish on that, that Zoom call. But, you know, some people have said that they haven't been able to uh, keep up on all of the stuff, but they want to come for that. And so, you know, there might even be up, upwards of 60 on there. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. Right. Oh, wow. So fun. Yep. Cam? Yeah. Yeah, Darlene. It's daylight time, not standard. Oh, yes. I, I keep saying mountain standard time, mountain daylight time. 7 p.m. for next week. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Have a great week. We'll, we'll see you all later. <laughs> Thanks. Bye bye. bye.